application before the Lord and His Word. From time to time in the 47 years that Carol and I have been married, it doesn't happen frequently, but on occasion we find ourselves discussing the past. Has that ever happened to you? Yes. Um, maybe every three years, five years, maybe even longer. Maybe it's a, you're coming up on a, a significant anniversary and you just find yourself sitting there reminiscing about the past. All about what God has done in your lives, in your marriage, in your family, in your ministry. And you're just reminiscing and inevitably you come to discuss those times that you maybe regret that you did something or you didn't do something. Or, honey, probably if we had that to do over again, we probably wouldn't do it or we wouldn't do it that way. Does that ever happen to you? might have been something 20 years ago, 40 years ago, 50 years ago. And, uh, and you sit there and you know if you begin to meditate too closely on that, you can become very, very discouraged. Wow, I should have. I did this. I really should have done that. Or I shouldn't have done it that way. But you know, one of the comforting things to us is knowing and understanding that God is in absolute, absolute control of our lives. And His actions are providential in our lives. He is working indeed all things for good for those who are called and are living for Him. And so I think it's good for us to be reminded of God's sovereign providence. We need to be reminded of God's sovereign providence in general, but we need to be reminded of God's sovereign providence particularly in our own lives and be encouraged in that as we understand who God really is. And so in this last study, I would like to title it, God the Only Sovereign King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I'm going to be turning to a number of scripture passages, some of them fairly rapidly, so you may or may not want to follow me. You may want to just write down some of the references in your Bible. But let me just start out with Psalm 135, verses 5 and 6. Psalm 135, verses 5 and 6. For I know that the Lord is great, and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, He does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and in all deeps. Whatever Yahweh pleases, He does in heaven and in earth, in the seas and in all deeps. Psalm 115 verse 3 says something very similar. But our God is in the heavens, He does whatever he pleases. Isaiah chapter 46, verses 9 and 10 say, Remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like 
me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying, My counsel will be established, and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Chapter 3 of the Westminster Council Confession of Faith speaks of the sovereign will of God this way. It says, and I quote, God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. I believe that is an accurate description of what we see in the scriptures before even the creation of the universe, God ordained, God decreed everything that comes to pass. The end from the beginning. He established the course of time and history. From the beginning of creation to the eternal kingdom that he will establish in the future. C.S. Lewis in his little book, The Problem of Pain, says it this way, the freedom of God consists in the fact that no cause other than himself produces his acts and no external obstacle impedes them. I like that. So I'd like for us to look at four areas in which God is sovereign. Obviously God is sovereign over everything. But I would like for us just to take some time this morning to break them down into a few little categories here. Maybe help us to understand them a little bit better. First of all, God is so sovereign over the little things. God is sovereign over the little things. And I would like you to turn to Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10. Drop down to verse... 28, actually, this whole paragraph here from verses 26 to 33 are talking about having no fear over anyone, even people's malicious intents and plans that they may have against me. I am not to be fearful of that. He says in verse 26, so have no fear of them. Verse 28, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And then he gives a couple of illustrations here. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me, even before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. So obviously the context of these verses are in this context of people's malicious plans and actions that they may have against us. But in the illustration here, Jesus points to God's care over the sparrows and even his numbering of our hairs on our heads. Lower penny there says for a penny, the trifling amount, the trifling amount, almost insignificant. And yet it says even one of these birds worth a trifling 
trifling amount can lose its life without the will and permission of God. Not one. God extends his care to an even finer point. He says, the hairs of your head are all numbered. Verse 30. The average human head has between 100 and 140,000 strands of hair. <laughs> it depends on whether you have lighter or darker colored hair or if you have any hair at all. <laughs> Each strand is numbered. Each strand has its own identity. What is Jesus' point here? Each strand of hair is important to God even as each common sparrow is important to God. God doesn't exercise His sovereignty in only a broad, general way, leaving the smaller details of our lives to chance or to luck, as the world likes to say. That's Jesus' precise point here in this particular passage. God who exercises sovereignty in such minute detail as to control the destiny of a little birth, bird worth a trifling amount will certainly exercise his sovereign control even over the most insignificant details of our lives. Do you believe that? That's why Jesus says in verse 31, don't be afraid because you are more valuable than many sparrows. There are innumerable events and circumstances in our lives that considered in themselves are calculated to make us afraid, they're calculated to make us fearful. In fact, if God is not in control, I ought to be fearful. I ought to be very afraid. It is of little comfort to know that God loves me if He is not, in fact, in control of all of the events and circumstances of my life. But it's precisely God's sovereignty over the smallest details of our lives that gives us the grace to obey Jesus' command to not be afraid. Because we know that not one detail of our lives. Not one detail of our lives has been left to chance, has been left to luck, not left to the whims of nature, not left to the hateful actions and intentions of other people. Not one. Why? Because God is sovereign over the little things. Number two, God is sovereign over people. God is sovereign over little things, but He is also sovereign over people. Now, many people are willing to grant God's sovereignty over nature and over so-called impersonal circumstances such as the mechanical failure in an airplane or a shark attack on an unsuspecting swimmer or even the devastation that a hurricane brings. Nature doesn't have a will of its own, so most of us don't have any trouble believing that God is free to operate through His physical laws in any ways He wants to. But when it 
comes to the concept of God's absolute sovereignty over people, many of us have a difficult time with that concept. They think that it destroys the free will of humans and makes them nothing more than puppets or robots on God's stage. But I'd like you to look at Proverbs 21.1. Turn actually there in your Bibles, if you will. Proverbs 21.1. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he pleases. God has absolute control over the most absolute of all wills, the king's heart. In Solomon's day, the king was an absolute monarch. His authority was unconditional. It was absolute. There were no congresses. There were no cabinets. There were no state legislature. There, were no, there was no democracy. He was an absolute person in control. He was a monarch. And yet, according to Proverbs 21.1, the stubborn will of the most powerful monarch on earth is directed by God as easily as the farmer directs the flow of the water into his irrigation ditches. We see several examples of this in Scripture. If we just limited our study, for example, to the great kings of Assyria, Babylon, and Medo-Persia, we would have personalities like Artaxerxes in Ezra chapter 7, people like Tiglath-Pileser in Isaiah chapter 10, Cyrus in Isaiah chapter 45, Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4, and Belshazzar in Daniel chapter 5. And you say, well, who were all of those guys? They were all wicked, sovereign monarchs that thought that they were doing whatever they wanted to do. And they were doing whatever they wanted to do. But what we see in those chapters of Scripture is that God used them to perform His purposes. And we see that throughout Scripture, throughout the Old Testament. We very often see that God uses nations to punish other nations because of their wickedness. And then these that He uses to punish these, He comes back around with somebody else and punishes them. God uses nations to punish each other because of their sin and rebellion. Guys, don't be afraid. We are living, yes, in a collapsing Western monarchy, but I want you to know that God is in control of the heart of every president, every king, every monarch, every prime minister living on the face of this earth. Amen. And Solomon's argument is from the greater to the lesser. If God controls the king's heart, then surely he controls everyone else's. I mean, that's Solomon's point here. All of us, at times, find ourselves in our futures in the hands of other people. Their decisions can determine the success or failure of our plans, of our careers, of our desires. For example, a government official can approve or deny a visa to enter or not a country. A supervisor can block or promote your career. A professor can determine the academic success of a graduate student. 
We often find ourselves at the mercy of other people and their decisions, right? But in reality, we're really not at their mercy because God sovereignly rules over those decisions and those actions. But, but, we must be careful not to misunderstand this point. And I'd like to mention several areas of caution that I have as we contemplate this particular truth. I'd like to mention four or five. We'll see how it goes. Cautions as we understand this particular truth. First of all, God's sovereignty over the hearts of people doesn't mean that their decisions or actions always work out the way we want. God sometimes allows malicious, evil, and spiteful people to act in ways that frustrate our plans, that frustrate our desires, or act in ways that are harmful to us. God often allows that. And a well-known example of this, of course, is Joseph and his brothers, right? He told his brothers later on in Genesis chapter 45, verse 8, it was not you who sent me here, but God, I'm pretty sure that if you would have given Joseph a boat when he was there in the well that his brothers had thrown him into, I'm pretty sure that he would not have voted to have been sold to a caravan of foreign pagans and taken off to another country that was a pagan, idolatrous country. I'm pretty sure he would have said, no, 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 that, that's not in my plans. And yet that's exactly what God allowed to happen to him. And he recognizes God's sovereignty. It was not you who sent me here, but God. And then later on in chapter 50 and verse 20, he said, You meant evil against me. You meant evil. You wanted to hurt me. You wanted to kill me. You just wanted to get rid of me. But God meant it for good. Number one, God's sovereignty over the hearts of people doesn't mean that their decisions or actions always work out the way we desire. Number two, we're talking about areas of caution that we need to, to, to maintain and balance here. Number two, God's sovereignty over people doesn't mean that we don't experience pain and suffering, but rather that God is in absolute control of our pain and suffering and that he has in mind for it a very wise and beneficial purpose. Joseph went on to say that the reason that God meant his suffering for good was in order to keep many people alive. Joseph's answer really has gone down in history as the classic statement of God's sovereignty over the affairs of men, right? There's no such thing as pain and suffering without a divine purpose for the child of God. No such thing. Because of God's absolute sovereignty over the affairs of men, we may be sure that however irrational, however inexplicable, however horrible it seems to us, all pain and suffering have a divine purpose. Number three, God's sovereignty over people makes a practical, objective difference in the believer's everyday life. We're not at the mercy of people who intend to harm us, regardless of what we think. 
Even though from a human perspective it may seem so. God is just as sovereign over their actions as He is over my actions. God intends for His children to draw great comfort from believing in His absolute sovereignty. I just can't even imagine those who don't understand this truth or don't believe this truth. I just can't even understand how they live. They're often struggled with anger and fear and bitterness, even to the point of ruining their lives. There's been a lady down in the Charleston area, a believer, a dear, precious saint of God, that has been overcome by fear because of the collapsing economy and society all around us, and every other day is called, should we do it? Should we? Should we? Hey, hang it up. Hang it up. Trust God. God is in control of this. But that's what happens if you don't believe this and if you don't trust God. You will be overcome with anger, you'll be overcome with fear, you'll be overcome with bitterness. You could ruin your life. Number four, God's sovereignty over people doesn't mean that we shouldn't act prudently with respect to those that might harm us. Jesus is a good example of this. John chapter 7 verse 1 says, And after these things Jesus was walking in Galilee, for he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. So here we have a situation where the Lord Jesus was walking in Galilee. There were people that were watching for him. They wanted to capture him. They wanted to kill him. And so he was unwilling to walk in Judea during this time because, verse 30 says, no man laid his hand on him because his hour had not yet come. So on one hand, we are told in this chapter that nobody laid a hand on Jesus because his hour had not come. That's referring to his hour of crucifixion, his death, burial, and resurrection. And yet we're told earlier in the chapter that because people were seeking to kill him, Jesus refused to go there and walk there. <clears throat> Jesus acted prudently. No one could have been more confident in God's sovereignty over his life than Jesus. But he did not, therefore, act carelessly. He took prudent steps to avoid danger when it was wise to do so. As a missionary, I can testify over as a missionary working in a country primarily that is under the control of criminal cartels and where horrendous homicides happen by the tens of thousands almost every day, I can tell you that we take every prudent measure possible. At the same time that we are in complete peace because we know that God is in control of our lives. So it's important to emphasize that belief in God's sovereignty over people and the everyday affairs of our lives should never cause us to act foolishly or irresponsibly. The scriptures repeatedly teach us that we are responsible to live prudently and not foolishly. The book of Proverbs really is a book that just outlines the way of wisdom and the way of foolishness. Jesus said to build your house on a solid foundation, and he meant by that in Matthew chapter 7, 24, 
Build your foundation on Him and His words. So God is sovereign over people, but we need to keep those caveats in mind as we discuss that particular truth. Number three, God is sovereign over nature. God is sovereign over nature. Another area in which we sometimes struggle with God's sovereignty is the area of sickness, physical, mental disabilities. Children are born with permanent disabilities. Accidents leave people who were previously healthy and vigorous with lifelong disabilities. Some people suffer for most of their life from debilitating chronic diseases. Is God sovereign over birth defects? God sovereign over disabilities? Is God sovereign over accidents? Over crippling diseases? You remember the time when God called Moses to lead Israel out of Egypt? At first, Moses wasn't very excited about that job responsibility. <laughs> he protested, putting forth his own inadequacies. Please, Lord. You know, it's always good to start those kinds of prayers. Please. Please, Lord, I am not eloquent. I am slow of speech and of tongue. Lord, I know that you want me to do this big thing, but do you not realize that I have a speech impediment? Don't you know that I'm not able to clearly articulate thoughts in a way that Pharaoh is going to need to understand, in a way that the children of Israel are going to need to understand? I really get out and I cannot really express that. Now, I think that God's reply to Moses is very instructive to us in this area. Yahweh said to Moses, He says, Who has made man's what? Mouth. Or who makes him mute? Or who makes him deaf? Or who makes him seeing? Or who makes him blind? Is it not I, Yahweh? Notice that God specifically assumes responsibility for the physical disabilities of deafness, muteness, and blindness. Right here in this verse. <clears throat> These physical disabilities aren't merely the product of defective genes or birth accidents. Those things may be the immediate cause, but behind them is the sovereign plan and purpose of God. Don Bron Donald Gray Barnhouse has anybody ever heard that name? Oh, good. I keep using these old guys. We, we started out our missionary career in the inner city of Philadelphia back in the 70s. And not too long before we got there, Don Ray Barnhouse has been the pastor for many years of 10th Street Presbyterian Church, which is just a magnificent facility in downtown Philadelphia. For the us today. Donald Gray Barnhouse, here's what I want you to remember. He said this, No person in this world was ever blind that God had not planned for him to be blind. No person was ever deaf in this world that God had not planned for him to be deaf. 
If you do not believe that, you have a strange God who has a universe which has gone out of gear and he cannot control it. One day Jesus was passing by he saw a man who had been blind from birth. John chapter 9 verse 1. His disciples asked him in verse 2, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents? That he would be born blind. Jesus answered in verse 3, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this was so that the works of God might be what? Manifested in him. The disciples assumed, like many in our own day, and certainly like the Jews of Jesus' day, that sin was the primary, if not exclusive, cause of all suffering. And while sin is a cause of suffering, as we clearly see throughout Scripture, it isn't always the case necessarily. In this instance, Jesus says, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but God brought this to pass in order that the works of God might be manifest in him. And so as Jesus explains the man's blindness, it's obvious that it entails a divinely orchestrated purpose. God ordained this evil nature, this evil event, this evil natural evil, we might call it, to overtake a man even as his infant body was emerging from his mother's womb into this world. Jesus indicates that the man's condition was divinely decreed in order that the work of God might be displayed in him. Oh, what is the work of God? The works of God here refer to the miracle that Jesus is about to do in order to give the man his first view of the world. So it turns out that this is merely the vehicle for God to display His glory through the conflict that He has written into this man's life story. And you know, that's exactly what God is doing in your story. You say, I don't like this. I don't like it. I'm not too fond of this racetrack that God has me on. Guys, God has a divinely orchestrated purpose for His glory and your good in every circumstance that He brings you through on the track of life. The belief state of this man's predicament provides the background for God's intrinsic glory to be manifested to a greater degree. William Cowper. Anybody ever heard of William Cowper? Whoa, good. By the way, Swan, Piper Swan series, if you want to know more about William Cowper, you can read about it in one of the gift groups for I think it's maybe two or three or four or one. Awesome. <laughs> one of those. William Cowper was an 18th century Christian poet. Bleak depression dogged him most of his life. Even, listen to this, even to the point of repeated suicides. You need to read his story. He was a Christian poet. He wrote hymns. 
We still sing some of his hymns today. For example, one of them is There is a Fountain Filled with Blood. Perhaps his most well-known hymn is God Moves in a Mysterious Way. And that hymn contains this verse, which we've all heard. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust Him for His grace. Behind a frowning providence, He hides a smiling face. What's that scripture reference? Uh, well, there's a lot of them. <laughs> Are you talking about the blind man? Well, why don't you just... This was from a hymn from William Cowper that William Cowper wrote called God Moves in a Mysterious Way. Yes. I thought you meant it was an action. No, not a verse. It's, right. it, it's obviously a reflection of the truth of the teaching of Scripture, but this is not a verse that comes from a hymn. We should also put in this category God's sovereignty over creation. We could spend all day on this, but I just want to mention it briefly. There are many places that we could see this, but I'd like you to turn back to Job, if you will, for just a minute. Job. I love Job. Job, you need to spend more time in Job. Turn over to Job chapter 36. Meet all of Job's wonderful friends. <laughs> With you is going to die all wisdom. When you die, my dear friend, is going to, all wisdom is going to disappear. Uh, that's only my sinful heart. Job chapter 36, drop down to verse 27. Just want to read a, a few verses here for you. For he draws up the drops of water, they distill his mist and rain, which skies pour down and drop on mankind abundantly. Can anyone understand the spreading of the clouds, the thunderings of his pavilion? Behold, he scatters his lightning about him and covers the roots of the sea. For by these he judges peoples, he gives food in abundance. He covers his hands with the lightning and commands it to strike the mark. He crashes, its crashing declares his presence. The cattle also declare that he rises. And this also my heart trembles and leaps out of its place. Keep listening to the thunder of his voice and the trembling and the rumbling that comes out of his mouth. Under the whole heaven he lets it go, and his lightning to the corners of the earth. After it his voice roars, he thunders with his majestic voice, and he does not restrain the lightnings when his voice is heard. God thunders wondrously with his voice. He does great things that we cannot comprehend. For to, for to the snow, he says, follow the earth. Likewise to the downpour, his mighty downpour, he seals up the hand of every man, that all men may he that he may whom he made may know it. Did the beast go into their lying lairs and remaining in, and remain in their dens? From its chamber comes the whirlwind and cold from the scattering winds. By the breath of God, ice is given, and the broad waters are frozen fast. He loads the thick cloud with moisture. The clouds scatter his lightning. They turn around and around by His guidance to accomplish all that He commands them on the face of the habitable world. Whether for correction or for His land or for love, He causes it to happen. Many, all of these people say, well, you know, God, God really just kind of just turns nature to go and He just kind of lets it go and do its thing. 
Uh, let me point you to a couple of words here. Verse 12. They turn around and around by his, what? Guidance to accomplish all that he, what? Commands them on the face of the habitable world, whether for correction or for this, or for his land or for his love. He causes it to what? There, there are many more references in Scripture that we can look at. But we just, obviously, Jesus controlling the seas and the winds in the New Testament, many other examples. But I just want you to know that God is sovereign over nature. He's sovereign over every atom, every molecule, every event, every raindrop, every everything. Number four, God is so sovereign over good and evil. God is sovereign over good and evil. This is another dimension of divine sovereignty that sometimes is difficult for us to, to accept. We're quite happy to ascribe the apparent blessings of life to God, but we're reluctant to ascribe calamities and disasters to Him. For example, Rabbi Harold Kushner in his book, When Bad Things Happen to Good People, he writes this, and I quote, he said, insurance companies refer to earthquakes, hurricanes, and other natural disasters as acts of God. I consider that that to be a case of God's, the using God's name in vain. I don't believe that an earthquake that kills thousands of innocent victims without reason is an act of God. Rather, he says, I believe that it is an act of nature. Nature is morally blind, without values. It churns along, following its own laws, not caring who or what gets in the way. End quote. There are probably many Christians, in fact, I've met some of them, that would affirm what Kushner believes, even though he's a complete pagan unbeliever doesn't line up with what Scripture actually teaches. Let me quote you three other Scripture verses. You can just write down the references. Just listen while I read these verses to you. But these Scripture verses are very explicit. They're very clear. They're very definitive about this particular point. Isaiah chapter 45, verses 5 through 7. Besides me, there is no God. There is no one besides me. The one, the one forming light and creating darkness, producing peace and creating calamity, I am Yahweh who does all of these things. Isaiah 45, 5 through 7. Lamentations chapter 3, verses 37 and 38. Who is there who speaks and it happens unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both calamities and good go forth? Amos chapter 3 verse 6. If a calamity happens in a city, has not Yahweh done it? In all of these passages, God expressly says that it is He who brings both prosperity and disaster, and that it is from His hand from which both good and calamity come. Now, we may not like that. We might try to minimize through some creative interpretation or some creative hermeneutic, we might try to minimize the force of all of that, of these very clear scriptural statements. 
But you know what we should do? We should allow the Bible to say what it says. And not what we think it ought to say, or what it should have said, or what we would have liked for it to say. We must let God be God, and not create a God according to our whims, and our wishes, and our little puny sinful mind. The question arises, however, if God is good, if God is a loving God, how can He allow or even cause such disasters and calamities? In systematic theology, this is called theodicy. For those of you who study systematic theology, the whole area of theodicy, perhaps a better question is, if God is holy and just, why does he not punish all of the ungodliness and wickedness on earth by even greater calamities? Are you ready for the answer to both of these questions? Are you ready? We don't know. We don't fully understand all of this. There is a whole lot of mystery to this. God has not chosen to reveal to us his reasons for his sovereign actions in the world and in our lives. We do know, however, that God will work out everything, both good and bad, in conformity with the purpose of His will. Ephesians 1.11 says, God works all things according to the counsel of His will, and will cause all things, both good and bad, to work together for the good of those who love God, Romans 8.28. There. This is where belief in God's exhaustive divine sovereignty makes a significant difference. Some Christians believe that the most that God can do is to pick up the pieces of a disastrous situation and try to bring some good from it. Oh yeah, I know that this hurricane really did a lot of damage, but don't worry, God wasn't really in control of that, but you know, He's going to come along and help you pick up the pieces afterwards. That's kind of the idea that some people have. On the other hand, those of us who believe in the, God's absolute exhaustive sovereignty believe that God was in control of the disaster from start to finish and that He knew from all eternity past how He would use the disaster to bring glory to His name and good to His hurting children. God planned a fixed course for all things. No one and nothing can change what He determines to take place. Isaiah chapter 14, verse 27, and also verse 24. For the Lord of hosts has counsel, and who can thwart it? And as far as his stretched out arm, who can turn it back? No plan of God can fail. Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 3 says that the plan of God is in stone forever. God is sovereign over good and evil. Lastly, as we come to the end of this, don't, don't get all excited because my conclusions can last an hour. So. <laughs> <laughs> Believe in God's absolute exhaustive sovereignty ought to make a difference in our lives. It ought to make a very practical difference in our lives. 
probably been reminded of some of these differences as we've gone through this study and even as we've looked at other studies throughout the course of the weekend, but I would like for just to mention a few of these. There are many more, but a few. First of all, it ought to give us courage and hope. It ought to give us courage and hope when we encounter any circumstance of life, whether good or calamitous. You don't have to understand why. Don't you remember the story of Elizabeth Elliot? You remember, you know who Elizabeth Elliot was. And her husband, along with several other men, were martyred as they tried to reach out to uh, an unreached group of indigenous peoples. Her husband was killed in that, martyred in that, and she writes in several of her books that for quite a number of years she would ask God in her prayers, Lord, I think that I could accept this. I think that I could go on with my life if you would just help me to understand why you did that. If you would just help me to understand why you allowed my husband to be martyred, I think I could deal with the situation and, and, and go on with life. And she kind of did that for a period of time after Jim was martyred. And she said God never did that. God never never brought that confidence to her that she understood the why of that. But she said as time went on, as I continued to meditate in the scriptures, the Lord helped me to understand that I didn't need to know the answer to why. Why was I even asking why? The Lord helped me to understand that I just needed to, to trust Him. He knew. He had his purposes in that. I didn't need to know why. I just needed to trust God. So, it ought to give us courage and hope when we encounter these circumstances of life that are difficult, sometimes calamitous. Number two, it ought to help us obey Jesus' commands and not be afraid. Remember, we saw that in Matthew chapter 10. Don't let your heart be troubled. John 14, 1. God's command in 1 Thessalonians 5, 18 to give thanks in all circumstances. You may have, may have already noticed this, but you know the world doesn't really like Christians. The world would love to get away with Christianity. They would love to do away with it. Do away with the Word. Do away with the Gospel. Do away with God. Do away with Christ. Do away with Christians. All you people that believe that crazy fairy tale stuff. And you know, as that continues to deepen, Christians, no doubt, are going to be faced with greater and greater persecution, perhaps even martyrdom. Have you ever read the story of Bonhoeffer? You need to. What does Jesus say? First of all, he says, don't be afraid of those that can kill your body, but cannot destroy your soul. Rather, fear him. Fear him who can destroy both your body and soul in hell. They're the ones that need to fear. They need to fear God. We should not fear. Number three, it ought to cause us to live our lives and make our plans in all humility. James 
chapter 4 verse 15 says that if that we should we should make plans it's right for us to make plans we should think ahead we should make plans we should make specific plans but at the end of that we should say if the Lord wills we will do this or that so we should live our lives in greater humility Oh, I mean, I mean, I've seen guys with day timers and phone calendars, and man, it, you need to look at Well, there, there's nothing wrong with that, but I think sometimes they begin to trust in their day timer instead of kind of living in humility. So, you know, holding their their calendars and their schedules and their lives in a more open hand before God. Lord, I, I hope you allow me to do this. I trust that you will allow me to do this, but I understand that you're in control of this, and I, I, I commit myself, submit myself to you. Number four, it ought to give us confidence that no man of God can be thwarted, either, either by human actions or acts of nature, and that God is indeed working out all things in conformity with the purpose of his will. Job, chapter 42. Have you heard of that guy before? <laughs> Job 42.2 I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. It ought to help keep us from becoming angry and bitter at God. You know people like that? that some, God has allowed some calamity, some disaster, some affliction, some something that's horrible. And they just become angry. They just become bitter. God, why did you, why did you do that? They, they turn this anger a lot of times to other people. But understanding God's absolute divine sovereignty ought to keep us from being fearful and becoming angry with God and bitter toward Him and with other people. It ought to keep us from being fearful as our nation and the nations of the world collapse all around us. One of my favorite prayers in all the Old Testament is Jehoshaphat, 2 Chronicles chapter 20. In verses 5 and 6 he says, O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of all of the nations. Swan books. Swan books. 
famous American pastor theologian. Many people believe that Jonathan Edwards was the greatest theologian that America's ever seen. That's probably true. And in late 1757, he had assumed the presidency of Princeton College in New Jersey. And in early 1758, he traveled to Princeton and assumed the presidency. One thing that many people don't know about Jonathan Edwards is that in addition to theology, he was also greatly interested in areas of science. And he read every science book he could get his hands on, studied science, very interested in all kinds of new scientific developments. And because of that, he allowed himself to be inoculated using a new technique that was called variolation. It was a precursor to the development of a new smallpox vaccine. He was inoculated on February the 13th of 1758 and died about five weeks later from the inoculation. He was 54 years old. He left his wife, Sarah, and 10 children. When Sarah heard of her husband's death, she wrote a letter to her daughter. Esther, <clears throat> my very dear child, what shall I say? A holy and good God has covered us with a dark cloud. Oh, that we may kiss the rod and lay our hands on our mouths. The Lord has done it. He has made me adore his goodness that we had Jonathan for so long. But my God lives, and he has my heart. Oh, what a legacy my husband and your father has left to us. We have all given to God. We are all given to God. And there I am and love to be. Your affectionate mother, Sarah. On December the 16th of 1974, John Piper's mother and father were riding on a tourist bus in Israel heading toward Bethlehem. A van with lumber tied on the roof swerved out of its lane and hit the bus, their bus head on. The lumber came through the windows and killed John's mother instantly. When they saw her body 10 days later, after the funeral home did the very best job that they could possibly do, John's sister fainted. Their mother's body was so mangled they could not recognize it. They decided to use pictures at the visitation before the funeral. John writes, what was my comfort in those days? There were many. She suffered a little. I had her for 28 years as the best mother imaginable. She had known my wife and one of my children. She was now in heaven with Jesus. And underneath all of these comforts, supporting all of my unanswered questions and calming my heart, there was the confidence that God is in control and that God is good. I took no comfort from the prospect that God could not control the flight of a 4 by 4 For me, there was no consolation in haphazardness. As I knelt by my bed and wept, 
Having received the dreaded phone call from my brother-in-law, I never doubted that God was sovereign over this accident and that God is good. Worship. That's what we call, that's what we call what Betty Elliot did. Worship, that's what we call what Sarah Edwards did. Worship, that's what we call what John Piper did in the face of calamity and tragedy. And above all, God's absolute exhaustive sovereignty ought to result in our continual worship. Worship is the overarching theme of salvation history. The occupation with which we will be eternally enthralled. Revelation 22.3 says in the new Jerusalem, the eternal city, no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. Worship. That's the supreme purpose for which believers were redeemed, right? Worship. Jesus said to the Samaritan woman, true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. Worship. Worship is to ascribe to the Lord honor and glory and adoration and praise and reverence and devotion that is due Him, both for His greatness and for His goodness. As the sovereign creator of the universe, the triune God alone, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is alone worthy of worship. Jesus commanded Satan, be gone, Satan. You shall worship the Lord your God and Him only shall you serve. And finally, for believers, the supreme act of worship is to offer all of themselves in the living sacrifice to the Lord. Romans 12, 1, you shall love. Romans 12, 1. And Matthew 22, 37, it says, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. So worship is not only a way of thinking about God's glory and His goodness, but it's a way of living. It's a way of living for His honor and for His glory. Fifty-eight minutes ago. 